Welcome back. It's been a few weeks since my last video, and as you can see, uh, I've moved since then. No longer surrounded by a pile of boxes, I'm reunited with my books once more, and uh, a special shout-out goes to my friend Joe, who sent me a gift of wine during the move. My, my heart has indeed been made glad. <laughs> when, we, when we left off, Lewis was at the portion of his argument where he's discussing whether or not nature is safe for miracles. He's already established that nature is not safe from the supernatural, at least in a regular way. But the current question is whether nature is safe from the supernatural in an irregular way, which is, which is basically what Lewis means by a miracle, uh, an irregular interruption of the supernatural into the natural. Uh, for Lewis, you could, you could argue that miracles are impossible from two directions. Uh, just, just by way of review here, there, there might be something about nature itself that prevents miracles, and there might be something about God that prevents them. Uh, we've just finished in the last video, Lewis' discussion of whether or not there's something about nature that prevents miracles. Uh, and his answer, no, there isn't. <laughs> and in the next chapter, Lewis will begin asking whether there's something about God that prevents miracles. No, there won't be, as it turns out. In any case, this particular chapter is actually an interlude between these two arguments. Uh, does, does, does nature negate miracles or does God negate miracles? In between those two arguments, Lewis writes this peculiar chapter nine, uh, titled, you know, a chapter not strictly necessary. It's an interlude in his argument, and in some ways in the whole book, it's actually the middle chapter of the volume. And I think we'll learn an enormous amount about Lewis' larger project if we, if we pay careful attention to this particular chapter. As I said last time, you can bet if, if Lewis' chapter is a title, a chapter not strictly necessary, it's bound to be one of the best chapters in the book. <laughs> Lewis is uh, explicitly dealing in this chapter with a kind of emotional roadblock to believing in miracles, a roadblock that he says once applied to himself. So, so he writes, quote, one of the things that held me back from supernaturalism was a deep repugnance to the view of nature, which, as I thought, supernaturalism entailed. I passionately desired that nature should exist on her own. The idea that she had been made and could be altered by God seemed to take from her all the spontaneity which I found so refreshing. In order to, to breathe freely, I wanted to feel that in nature one reached at last something that simply was. The thought that she had been manufactured or put there, and put there with a purpose, was suffocating, end quote. Lewis later writes uh, that he asked himself, quote, if nature herself proves artificial, uh, where will you go to seek wildness? Where's the real out of doors? To find that all the woods and small streams in the middle of the woods and odd corners of the mountain valleys and the wind and the grass were only a sort of scenery, only backcloths for some kind of play, and that perhaps the play uh, was one with a moral. Uh, <laughs> what flatness, what an anticlimax, what an unendurable bore, end quote. <laughs> uh, once again, we we see that what is remarkable about Lewis' apologetics is that he's not defensive or merely polemical. He's really trying to persuade people by means of their own most deeply felt emotions and impressions. Moreover, and this is just so incredibly key, he isn't reading these emotions and impressions cynically. He takes for granted that there is something to this concern. He feels the need to scratch this itch. And so he immediately, in fact, goes on to write, quote, the cure for this mood began years ago, but I must record that the cure was not complete until I began the study to study the question of miracles. At every stage in the writing of this book, I found my idea of nature becoming more vivid and more concrete. 
I set out on a work which seemed to involve reducing her status and undermining her walls at every turn. The paradoxical result is a growing sensation that if I am not careful, she will become the heroine of my book. She has never seemed to me more great or more real than at this moment, end quote. I just love this. Not only is Lewis dignifying the place from which this objection comes, he's actually arguing that what the secular folks want in their vision of nature is actually given to them more when the alternative is properly understood and imagined. And I just want to pause again and note the fact that Lewis is able to achieve these kinds of insights precisely because he refuses to be simply cynical about his opponents. And don't get me wrong, Lewis can fight, <laughs> and he does, but he also really does try to grasp his opponent's views as at least partially gesturing towards something real, a gesture he himself felt as a younger man. And in fact, indeed, in the, in, later in the next chapter, uh, he mentions that he learned adult thinking from some agnostic mentors. But Lewis is precisely arguing in this book and trying to show that this very safe, self-same modern skeptical, uh, that, that he's trying to show this very self-same modern skeptical audience that reality, when more deeply and fully understood, both looks quite a bit unlike what they say, but also that it fulfills the sentiments and virtues that they rightly care about. Lewis is deeply in tune with the fact, you might say, that that God is the truth behind all truth and desire behind all desires. But he doesn't just know that this is the case. He really tries to show how that shows up in real communities of real men. Uh, and, and the ability to connect those two, it really is just what wisdom is. Uh, Lewis, in this sense, is, is just a wise person that we ought to, to follow and listen to in these respects. Okay, so what's the idea here? Lewis is responding to, to what amounts to an aesthetic objection. It, it seems that our most authentic experiences with nature are not those wherein we are most prominently encountering a lesson of some sort, such that the significance of nature is found in its reduction to something else behind our experience. We rather encounter nature as an object of wildness for us, that which is not reducible, but that which situates us and informs the horizon against which we move, the, the canvas of our adventure, as it were. Lewis is going to argue that supernaturalism doesn't ruin all of that, and he does this by kind of turning the argument on the naturalists. Here's how he does this. He writes, quote, As long as one is a naturalist, nature is only a word for everything. And everything is actually, uh, I shouldn't add words, he doesn't say actually, and everything is not a subject about which anything very interesting can be said or save by illusion felt. One aspect of things strikes us and we talk of the peace of nature, another strikes us and we talk of her cruelty. And then because we falsely, falsely take her for the ultimate and self-existent fact and cannot quite repress our highest instinct to worship the self-existent, we are all at sea and our moods fluctuate and nature means to us whatever we, whatever, uh, we please as the moods select and slur, end quote. So what's Lewis saying? The, the, the sentiment he's, sentiments he's describing, a, a sort of wonder at the endless particularity of nature, cannot be a feeling you have about nature on naturalism. Because if all the threads of reality have to meet in nature itself at some high point, then you wind up with a concept of nature where everything is reduced to sort of one note. 
So you've got your karmatic hippie version of everything being a biz, big cosmic dancer, one knot, and then you've got your nature red in tooth and claw variant, or what is especially popular these days, the reduction of all things to kind of absolute, you know, cosmic indifference. Lewis, I'm betting, would suspect that that indifferent cosmic picture perhaps has something to do with modern man's own tendency to an indifferent sort of moderate temper. In any case, Lewis goes on, quote, but everything becomes different when we recognize that nature is a creature, a, a created thing with its own particular tang or flavor. There's no need any longer to select and slur. It's not in her, but in something far beyond her that all lines meet and all contrasts are explained. It is no more baffling that the creature called nature should be both, both fair and cruel than that the first man you meet on the train should be a dishonest grocer and a kind husband. Uh, you see what Lewis is doing. He's kind of upping the ante here. My supernature plus your nature isn't my supernature minus your nature. It is your nature with all its particularities and wonder plus my supernature. And in fact, all that texture and particularity remains texture and particularity in my nature because that which unifies all that is diverse isn't in nature itself, but rather beyond nature. Lewis is, is making the case that nature is irreducibly particular and full of particulars. And he feels no pressure like the naturalist to collapse those particulars into one another. We need not reduce mind into matter, the, the specific into the general, the immaterial into the material. Nature is rightly described by all or most of our descriptions of her because she is irreducibly intrinsically diverse. And just a side comment, Lewis, as throughout, moves, moves kind of freely between talking about nature and talking about man. The, the example he uses is of a complex man who manifests some virtues in one case, being a grocer, and some in another, being a, a husband, precisely presumably because he's a complicated and not an entirely consistent and unified person. And, and so Lewis, like Plato and Aristotle and even the Bible, presumes that there's a meaningful traffic to be had between discourse about man and discourse about the cosmos. However articulated, the, the guiding insight is that the structure of the one, in some crucial, in some crucial respect, maps onto the structure of the other. In any case, as I said, Lewis is upping the ante on the naturalist. It's, it's actually the supernaturalist who can most appreciate nature because its particularity, it's being a canvas for wonderment and adventure, is never reduced, qua nature, into something general within, within her. And so Lewis concludes, quote, to, to say that God has created her is not to say that she is unreal, but precisely that she is real, end quote. <laughs> Lewis goes on to compare God to an author and, and as we tend to think there's dignity in the relationship of an author's text to the author, how much more could we speak of the same of God? There's, there's, there's absolute freedom and particularity in God's choices and his wisdom in putting on, on this, con, this creational canvas precisely uh, what he's put on it. Uh, nothing is arbitrary and nothing is externally compulsory, though there might be internal pressure. That is to say, whatever nature God makes will be self-consistent. And, and Lewis does comment upon this. He writes, quote, uh, Shakespeare need not create Falstaff. But if he does, Falstaff must be fat. <laughs> God need not create this nature. He might have created others. He, he may have created others. But granted this nature then doubtless no smallest part of her is there except because it expresses the character he chose to give her. 
It would be a miserable error to suppose that the dimensions of space and time, the death and rebirth of vegetation, the unity and multiplicity, multiplicity of organisms, the union and opposition of sexes, and the color of each particular apple of Herefordshire this autumn were merely a collection of useful devices forcibly weld together. They are the very idiom, almost the facial expression, the smell or taste of an individual thing, end quote. The naturalist must reduce these things to something else. Nature is reduced to the epiphenomenon or social laws or biological laws or chemical laws and finally physical laws. But this is just to get things backwards. All of those things are just the scaffolding on top of which the real show is actually occurring. The real thing that is right in front of your face. And it is, of course, precisely this immediate and diverse and non-reduced thing that actually evokes the sense of wonder he started this chapter with. And so you see the irony there. The actual things that gives you the sense of wonder you want to preserve is a thing that only makes sense on the version of nature you get in supernaturalism, which preserves the particularity, not the version you get in naturalism, uh, which must ultimately reduce things. Uh, and if this is all Lewis argued, this would already be a great chapter. But he then adds two crucial insights. The first is that nature's immediate particularity shapes what it means that she has fallen. And the second is that nature's immediate particularity shapes what it means that she will be redeemed. So just as each person looks good and looks bad in a particular way, so creation looks bad and looks good as a corruption or perfection of her created goodness. When she falls, she falls as herself. But when she's redeemed, she is redeemed as herself. So Lewis writes of nature that, quote, she will be cured in character, not tamed, heaven forbid, nor sterilized. Uh, we shall still be able to recognize our old enemy, friend, playfellow, and foster mother, so perfected as to not be less, but more herself. And that will be a merry meeting, end quote. And I really just can't begin to tell you how crucial this insight is for young persons to learn. Uh, you see, one of the things Lewis is so good at capturing is the diversity, not just of creation, but of, but of man. Recall that he thinks that the traffic between talking about one and talking about the other is by design. Uh, sometimes we, we get the impression, for instance, that the godly life or godly priorities and decisions about which virtues I should focus on are, are, uh, are absolutely common to all men. And to be sure, there are common elements in human morality and in the pursuit of the virtues. Nevertheless, part of, part of growing in virtue is to know yourself and what your particular strengths and weaknesses are. Those areas where God has given you gifts to give to your neighbor and those areas where you characteristically, characteristically fail to trust God. And here's the thing. You just are your peculiar combination of these things. You're you. And for you to become godly is not to become an abstraction, but to grow into yourself, the particular person that God has made you, but the version of yourself that is for your neighbor. Uh, and we can speak similarly about what a corrupted you looks like, the, the ugliness that you can manifest, the peculiar evil that you can actualize is inflected precisely by your unique pattern and circumstance. 
And this is precisely why it's grievous. We see precisely how we as individuals perpetuate the ruin of the world with our own distinct mark, as it were. Now, these, these peculiarities aren't equal, however. The, the chorus of good performances is far more diverse than the catastrophe of bad ones. Consumed things begin to look all the same. You know, when a fire burns things down, all the things begin to look more and more the same. But flourishing things look more and more distinctive as they flourish into themselves. Uh, nevertheless, to, to really possess and appropriate the gospel, you need to come to grips with the relationship between these two truths. God's redemption of you is both from what is general about your condition, but also what is specific about it. And what that redemption will look like in your life will consequently pass through the channels of what is general, but also what is particular about you. Uh, It is you who are being redeemed. Growing in grace for you is always going to involve growing into something peculiar. All right, well, next time we'll see see Lewis transition back into his main argument, and he'll he'll take up the, the case to be made against miracles rooted in a particular understanding of God. That is to say, the idea that there's something about God that prevents uh, uh, nature from being intruded in by the supernatural in an irregular way. So I, I look forward to seeing you then, but for now, farewell.